Hello and welcome to the Queen Trail podcast. Queen Trail, a woman who emphasizes a life of passion expressed through personal style, leisurely pastimes, charm, and a cultivation of life's pleasures. I am Syl Annan, and I invite you to join me in exploring and savoring life's riches and the beauty that surrounds us. In the company of friends, we can laugh, discover, appreciate, and support each other. So I hope that you will join me where I will talk about everything that makes up the rich and diverse fabric of a delightful life. Let's cultivate vibrant conversation together. Welcome. Hi, everyone. I hope you're doing great since the last time that we got together. I had a little mishap this last week. I was walking up some stairs. I think I was on the third or fourth step. And I lifted my leg to go on to the next step and it felt like my knee caught in the socket. And then it kind of popped out and popped back in. Not good. (laughs) And, you know, honestly, nothing tells you that you're getting older than when stuff in your body starts to pop and not when it's supposed to. Um, So yeah, I am on crutches now and getting PT for it and uh, it's getting better. I think what I did was strain a ligament somehow that whatever it was that popped out must have pushed on that ligament. I mean, like stuff's not supposed to pop out like that. Um, And I got such an anatomy lesson on the knee and the hamstring and how there's like these four different connection points in your hamstrings. Um, Major purpose is to keep your knee stabilized. And then there's these two ligaments that run alongside and more down along the bottom. And when they were explaining those four muscles or those four points on the hamstring muscle, I was nodding along because that's the direction up was the direction that the pain was radiating. And I could just see that it was running up at least two of those connections. Um, So anyway, it's getting a whole lot better. The doctor gave me some very, very appropriate protocol to take care of this. And like I said, I'm getting PT for it. I'm going to make sure that I keep those hamstrings strengthened and strong to keep my knee in place and, you know, not ever have this happen again. Because the other thing about hobbling around in crutches is, you know, at first, it's a little bit scary when they hand them over to you because you're like, I I don't really know, like, I'm I'm probably going to fall using these. And I got the hang of it pretty quickly. The therapist or, um, well, it was a nurse that gave it to me. The nurse explained to me that you bring both of your crutches and your injured foot. In my case, it's the left leg. So you bring both of the crutches and your left leg forward in a single motion. And then your right leg catches up. And then you lift up both of the crutches and your left leg, bring those forward, plant them. And then your right leg catches up again. And it's just kind of this, it it becomes almost a normal gait. But I can't help but think of, 
you know, like it, it some sort of robotic pony. I, it, I'm just like not used to it. And then of course, you've got the top part of the crutches up underneath your arm. And there's the handholds. And you literally cannot carry anything like your your life changes so drastically the things that you used to take for granted you can't do anymore so immediately it became evident that if I wanted to carry anything I needed a backpack and I have a like a very heavy arctic it's, it's like a backpacking backpack so luckily Sophie had one and I just threw everything in there. <laughs> but um, the other day I bought a cup of coffee and then I realized my car wasn't very far away from where I purchased this cup of coffee. But I, I'm sure there's a video of me somewhere on YouTube <laughs> circulating of trying to walk in crutches while carrying this cup of coffee. I ended up with, I ended up spilling like half of it. Um, so I, it gives me, you know, a whole new perspective. I know this is very temporary and I certainly don't mean to whine about it because it's, it's helping me not put the wear and tear on my knee that, that would prevent it from healing and um, these are super lightweight. I'm surprised. They're just very, very light. And that's really cool. Um, but they are clunky and get in the way and keep you from being able to do anything else because your whole purpose becomes being able to propel yourself through space. Um, so I'm looking forward to my knee getting better and just being able to walk and drink my coffee at the same time. <laughs> Speaking of beverages, I finally finished my limoncello. It was super easy to do. I mean, it's just a few steps, but it does have this long rest period, this long fermentation period. So I had shared that you peel just the outer golden part of the lemons and then you put those in a jar and pour either 100 proof vodka over the top of them or Everclear fermented for four weeks in a dark place, shaking it every day a little bit. And then I opened it up the other day and it was so fragrant. And I put a spoon in there and tried a little bit. And oh, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, you know, they say stuff grows hair on your chest. And that certainly had that that burning quality there, like it was going to do that. And that's definitely not what I want. So the second step is to make a simple syrup, which is three cups of sugar and four cups of water. And you bring that to a boil, stir it up, make sure everything's dissolved and take it off the heat and let it cool off. Oh, you strain the lemon <laughs> peels out. And then that goes in with the alcohol that you have left and you end up with this golden, beautiful limoncello. And so I put it in these little bottles. They're called woozy bottles. They have little caps and then they have this uh, plastic cover and you grab your blow dryer and it shrink wraps it. 
and makes it look really nice. Throw a little label on there and they make the best gifts. So I'll post the recipe soon on the dot com, but I'll post some pictures on social media of the limoncello. So yeah, I hope you enjoy. Cheers. So the other thing that happened is I was in an office and I hear somebody say that there's a lizard in there. And it was a pretty full office. So I knew that there were going to be people who felt all kinds of different ways about this lizard. And I wanted to make sure that I was the first one to get to it so that I could rescue it. And this lizard was down the hallway. He was underneath a couple of refrigerators at different times. He was underneath a vending machine. He ended up in offices. He ended up under filing cabinets, inside closets. Every single one of those doors has a gap at the bottom and it's just high enough for a lizard to slip through or, you know, a little bug or whatever and terrorize the occupants on the other side of the door. I'll tell you, he is like the terrorist of lizards. He had people screaming, jumping on tables, almost crying. He was everywhere. It it was about a three hour chase and wait and chase and wait and, you know, eventually capture. But in between, he got a lot of people very upset. And I was kind of surprised, not entirely but got me thinking because it made me kind of sad to see how upset people were over this little harmless Western fence lizard. And they're really quite amazing. I have them at my home. I happen to live beside a canyon. And I also don't have a dog or other animal in the yard that is going to disturb them. So my yard has kind of become a haven for these lizards. And actually, they've been here since I moved here. So I've been living in very close proximity with many, many lizards for well over 25 years, many, many Western fence lizards to be specific. Although sometimes I do see the alligator lizards out there and you have to be a little more careful with those because they will bite. Western fence lizards do not. And um, alligator lizards can get really long and they can be mistaken for snakes until you see their feet because uh, they also kind of have that side windery type of walk to them and they look a little bit more like Boo's nemesis in Monsters Inc. Randall. They kind of have a little bit of that Randall look to them. So yeah, so I've got those. Um, The Western fence lizards are truly amazing just magical lizards. They're more of a Southern California lizard, although you can find them in other places in North America and in Mexico. And I think that they've even been seen as far north as Canada, but they are more of a dry weather, semi-arid, deserty place lizard like Los Angeles. And they're about the same color as the dirt. They're not very flashy lizards at all, unless you see a male one. So really, I think that the lizard that was running through the office the other day was a female. She didn't have the blue underneath. She didn't have blue on her sides. And male lizards tend to have a blue pattern under them. And that's kind of how you can distinguish them. But the cool thing is that Western fence lizard blood 
has a protein in it that neutralizes the Lyme bacteria in ticks. And ticks are kind of like equal opportunity biters. They will bite anything. Um, They like to get underneath the scales of reptiles and, you know, they're kind of protected there, which (sighs) I hate ticks. I, you know, there's not very many creatures on this planet that I hate. I think it's a pretty short list and ticks and mosquitoes are on it. Um, There are probably a few others, but I feel a tangent coming. I'm sorry. I got to go on a tangent. You know, when I was in Italy... Venice, Italy in July, and it was muggy and hot, and we were right next to the canals. You would go and take a shower, grab a towel, dry yourself, and within two minutes, you were that wet again, and you had to dry yourself again. It was just kind of miserable, and the mosquitoes loved it, and they have, apparently, there are many varieties. I'm going to have to do some research on mosquitoes, even though I don't like them, Um, But there's apparently many different varieties of mosquitoes. And the ones that are in Italy were very small. And their capacity to hold blood was disproportionate to their size. And I just remember looking up and seeing this little red spot on the wall. And I thought, what is that? And I got closer and it was this little mosquito that had just drank my blood. Oh, the little thief, the little blood thief. (laughs) I hate mosquitoes, I really do, but um, I did a little bit of research. So apparently the females are the only ones that bite you because they need the protein to develop eggs. And I came across this article online, I'll post a link to it in the show notes, where it started out because there's an urban legend out there that if a mosquito is biting you and you tense up your muscles, you can make it blow up which is just diabolically genius, but apparently it is only an urban legend. And this scientist kind of started a little bit of research on that, and he found out that there is a way to make mosquitoes explode. It's very intricate. It can only be done in a a lab. But what they do is make an incision in the ventral nerve cord of the mosquito. So ventral is the front, for those of you who have been away from biology class for too long. Um, And I guess this cut must be near the stomach because what it does is it cuts off the signal to stop feeding. And horror of horrors, it gives a mosquito an unquenchable thirst for blood. But then they they literally can't stop that they will blow up. And, And it's kind of disgusting. But if you're not squeamish, and you like funny science pieces that are just kind of a little bit out there on the parameters of strange and wonderful at the same time, please read this article. It's very short. It is from Entomology Today. So it's definitely a science piece. And it's it's just great exploding mosquitoes. <laughs> and since I'm talking about mosquitoes, and we just had some rain, I mean, it was very minor where I'm at, but I know some places got a little bit more rain. When the sun comes back out, the mosquitoes come out, that moisture kind of attracts them and they will lay eggs in anything that has standing water. So this is my PSA 
to go out there and dump any standing water around your yard to reduce the prevalence of mosquitoes. And if you don't know what mosquito larvae look like, they, um, when you get near water, you'll notice a little bit of a quickening like this, this uh, wiggly motion in the water. When you get near it, they think you're a predator that's going to eat them and and you should be a predator. Dump them out in the soil so that they die and don't uh, spread disease to other people. But since I'm on the subject of mosquitoes, and I mentioned how much I hate ticks, I actually have a tick story. And you're probably wondering at this point, like, is she just going to talk about bugs throughout or insects throughout this entire episode? And there is definitely an entomological lean to this episode. But I'm going to talk about ticks. And then I'm going to go back to finish my story about the lizard. Um, and then I'm going to go into some serious stuff. So please stay with me. I promise you it's going to be a great episode. So the tick story has to do with my girls weekend girls, the same ones that we kayaked in that crazy storm through the San Juan Islands with. And we went horseback riding in Pismo Beach. It was a sunset ride right along the the coast there. And there was just a series of trees on each side of that trail and their canopies had grown together. So it was this really long arch that we were walking under and that happened a few times, really beautiful countryside. We were having a blast and afterwards we went to dinner and one of the girls scratched her head and she came away with something in her hand and she went over to a light because it's very down inside of this restaurant and we're waiting for a table. It was very crowded, that waiting area. And she looks at it and she comes back and looks at us and she goes, is that a tick? And she flicked it. And it was mayhem. (laughs) I mean, people went diving for the floor and the doors and away from us because they didn't want to be near a tick. And all of us were losing our minds because if she had a tick on her, we probably had ticks on us. So it was this mad dash to the bathroom. <laughs> we're all crashing into the bathroom. There were like six of us. And we get, furiously start going through each other's hair. Like, you know, like when you're <laughs> watching Natural Geographic and you see the monkeys that are going through each other's hair and picking out ticks. And j- we just wanted to get rid of them. And Fortunately, we didn't find any ticks on anybody. Now, I am the only one in that group with black hair and ticks happen to be black. And it was months before, probably even like a year or two before, I finally felt comfortable enough that there was not a tick embedded somewhere in (laughs) my scalp because that's what they do. And um, 
I never had a reason to believe it, you know, but when I would think about it, my scalp would start itching and I would start getting all these thoughts going through my mind that, oh my God, that must be the tick from the horseback riding trip. And they must have, you know, we either brushed against some foliage that had ticks on it because we were um, north enough where that's a little bit more prevalent or they were on the horses themselves. But it was a scary moment for sure. And it turned into a completely comedic reaction to that. And, you know, we finally got a table. And I am so happy that did not kick us out of that restaurant. Um, And we all immediately ordered a round of drinks just to kind of like decompress, get our zen back, get our composure back. (laughs) Um, Ticks are scary. I had talked to somebody who had been bitten by a tick and contracted Lyme's disease and almost died, was paralyzed and was basically on his deathbed. And it's a miracle that he came back from that. So they're pretty serious. So I love, love my Western fence lizards. They're they're a great thing to have around the yard. Not only do they neutralize the bacteria that causes Lyme disease when um, a tick drinks their blood, but they're also like predators of all of those bugs that you don't want in your yard, like beetles and mosquitoes. They eat mosquitoes and grasshoppers. Ooh, another one that is uh, like never was until I started gardening, but is now on my list of things that I hate. So I love my Western fence lizards. And it's crazy time when they have babies. Those little lizards are everywhere because you look out the window and there's like lizards hanging onto your screen. And you don't want them in the house because they're fast as lightning and it's really hard to, it's really, really hard to catch them. They flow like water. So I did get that lizard to safety and... To me, just fascinating thing that happens to animals when you pick them up and carry them out to safety. And it's it's like if you're watching them as you're moving them through space, animals aren't used to that. So when they notice, it's like their fear melts away as their sense of wonder takes over. They clearly don't have language like we do, but whatever their language is, are they wondering how they're moving, not by their own volition? Are they looking around and just thinking, you know, wow, this is what the world looks like from up here? Or do they think they're on a different planet because they have no way to tell that they're looking at the same planet just from a different height, because everything's going to look very different from what they normally see. And it's really endearing to me to watch animals do that. So I did release them to a safe place. Um, But it just made me think, you know, once he was taken care of, all of these upset people who were terrorized by one, a beneficial lizard, and two, a harmless one, and how often that happens, and that I've actually been there. So um, the story I'm about to tell you is probably going to just horrify some people. And if it were to happen today, it definitely would be considered child abuse. Um, I question sometimes when I think about this, how somebody could do anything like this to a child. 
how they would think that this was even okay. But I had a grandmother who came from Costa Rica to the United States about a month before I was born. Most of my family um, immigrated from Costa Rica about a month before I was born. And it's actually a pretty proud story because the bravery entailed in just picking up from a country to move to another country where you don't know the language or anyone is spectacular. Um, They all got their green cards. My eldest uncle came over first, found a job and then found a job for his father, my grandfather. My mom took a job as well because, you know, it's just hard to come to a new country and pick up, but everybody was able to get jobs. My uncle, my youngest uncle was around 14 or 15 at the time. He went to high school and everyone did really well for themselves. Well, because everybody was working or going to school, my grandmother remained in the household as the primary caregiver for me and my sister. And um, my sister was very young. And, you know, she was so cute. I mean, it's just like, it's really ridiculous and hilarious to look back at pictures because my mom liked to dress us like twins, which we weren't. I'm two and a half years older than my sister. And I have a ton of pictures, just a ton of photographs where we're both dressed in the same exact outfit, big bows on our hairs, fluffy dresses with these ruffled underwear underneath, cute little boots. And I was older and taller and clearly more mature than my sister, which means that I was like, not the cute twin ever. And, and I think that there was kind of that personality about me because I've always been very curious and precocious rather than cute. I don't do cute as a personality well. My mom said that she would chase me down the street often to bring me back home because somebody, some stranger was walking by the house and I would run out to have a conversation with them and follow them down the street so I could finish that conversation. So it's kind of something that I was born with. And it led me to be the writer that I am to uh, produce storytelling events for a while there, and clearly to be the host of a podcast. I love the spoken word, I love the written word, and I definitely had a penchant for it as a little kid. So I'm sure that I really tried my my grandmother quite a few times because I asked a lot of questions. I talked a lot. I was just nonstop talker. And I wanted to know everything about the world. And my grandma had a really tough job. She would get up very early in the morning. I mean, like I'm talking 3.30 in the morning to make breakfast for everybody, pack lunches, start dinner, at that time, clean the house, 
take care of the kids. I mean, it was a lot. Not that she was an indentured servant. She had a lot of talents and a lot of hobbies that she developed. And she lived a really rich life and she inspired a lot of people. Um, She was also a very devout Catholic. There were several rosaries that she prayed a day. She burned candles to saints and had additional prayers for them. And that was very important to her. That was an important religious part of her routine to have that conversation with God many times a day. And I probably interrupted that quite often. I don't know if that's what I did that morning. I do know that I I would get in trouble for that because I didn't understand this communication with the divine. I was living in the moment, in the present. And um, so she had a long list of things to do and expecting her to do so much in addition to the things that she found very necessary, essential to who she was and what she believed in. That makes it really tough to be around a child. Now, I am not excusing what my grandmother did at all. But I think, like I probably mentioned a lot, that I'm very thoughtful about these things because I have this huge curiosity of why people behave in certain ways. And it's good to have that background because empathy has a way of tempering emotion, but also it has a way of reducing a sense of victimhood that you could get stuck in. And as a Hispanic, as a first generation American of Hispanic descent, I see the dichotomy in cultural norms of upbringing. And there is a lot of normalization of corporal punishment and just forcing them into compliance via forms of punitive punishment. You know, there certainly wasn't a dearth of that when I was growing up. I didn't enjoy it. I, you know, I I know no kid would, no, nobody does. But having experienced that as so many people have, I mean, you know, you see these TikTok videos and these YouTube videos and just Hispanic families making fun of the chancla, the uh, flip-flop that a mom would throw from, you know, the other room down the hallway around the corner, and it would hit its mark every single time. Or la cuchara, which would be like the wooden spoon that people would get spanked with, or la faja, which is the belt. And I know it's not just a Hispanic thing, because I've seen, I've seen these TikTok videos. And it's like, you know, when I was a kid, this is what happened. And there's kind of this pride in it. And that bothers me because it normalizes it just a little bit more like, you know, I made it through, I was spanked like this, and I grew up to be a good person. So my kids are going to get the same treatment. It's not okay. Anytime that an adult does anything diminishing of the human spirit to a child, it is an adult 
tantrum fit that results in the injury of a child's development. And I know that might be controversial to some people, but I'm telling you as somebody who has been there and has raised two really amazing human beings without ever spanking them, um, that's my opinion. I'm not okay with it. But in looking more carefully at that issue, it's, it's a normalized way of parenting. It's a normalized way of rearing children. And it really shouldn't be. And I'm also not trying to shame anybody. I've just found that it's a good idea to take a breath and intentionally consider what the options are what is appropriate to apply to the situation. Sometimes that gives us enough distance to understand that there are alternatives. And I'll get more into parenting on another episode. I just wanted to touch on it because of what I'm about to tell you. So I don't know how many times my grandmother did this. It, it I only remember one time and I am assuming that it was a singular instance But I had done something that morning that disrupted her routine and upset her very much. And she, you know, decided that I needed to be punished. And like I've heard other people say, you do something in the morning, but it's school time. So which which should be enough time. (laughs) Kids are in school for for hours. That should be enough time for an adult to go, not to plan the horrible thing that they're going to do to their child when the child comes back in, but to sit down and inventory their feelings and inventory their actions and inventory what the appropriate discipline is for the child, if there really even is any. Because sometimes those feelings of anger are just our frustration. We own it. And it's not fair to apply it to a child. But again, I need to move on from that. Um, so on this day, I was about five years old. She, was, she needed to walk me to school. I, had, I don't remember what it is that I did, but it was disruptive enough that she was very angry with me. And she told me, when you get home, you will be punished. So we're walking and along this path that we always took was a building that had been demolished. And the only thing that remained was a broken foundation of cement. So there were cracks everywhere and there were weeds growing up through this. And the the whole area was surrounded by a chain linked fence. And coming out of these various cracks were, you know, nature started to take over and there were red ants. Those fire ants were walking around everywhere And I see my grandmother pull a baggie out of her purse and a tissue. And she reached down and she grabbed a bunch of ants with that tissue and threw them all along with the tissue into her bag. And I could see these little red ants just crawling around inside of that bag. And she got the little twist tie, doubled it over, and then um, put the twist tie around it. And I said, what are you doing? Why do you have ants? And she said, Oh, you'll see later. And 
I didn't connect it. I didn't connect it because I was five years old. I get very distracted by nature and I get very distracted by what's going on around me. And I'm just, like I said, I'm very curious and it's something that has never left me. And so it was like, oh, okay, well, I'll find out later. And that was a good enough answer for me. And then I had my whole school day. End of the day comes, I've completely forgotten But so many events have happened in between, you know, good ones, bad ones, sleepy time because naps were still a thing back then. I mean, a lot of life happened in between, not just for me, but for my grandmother, which should have been enough time for a reasonable adult to set aside their disappointment. She came and picked me up and we walked back home and she made me lunch I don't know that I remember specifically that day that she made me lunch, but I remember that was a ritualistic thing. And my my sister was probably napping. Um, So, you know, if I was five, she was like two and a half or so. So that was nap time. And then my grandmother had me sit in the middle of the living room and wait for her. And then she came back and she had that little baggie in her hands. And she took the whole baggie without opening it up and stuck it in my pants. She showed me the ants first, and then she stuck it in my pants. And um, I was terrified. I was terrified. She told me about all these stories about people being eaten alive by ants in Costa Rica, and that these were the ants that would do that. And... I just, your imagination goes crazy. You know, fear, um, it's why torture is so effective. It's a way of manipulating a person into compliance. And that's certainly what my grandmother was trying to do with me. But I do remember that, you know, I was crying uncontrollably. And I was terrified. And I just wanted these ants out of my pants And she wouldn't let me take the bag out. And eventually, at some point, she took it out and um, made me promise I was never going to do whatever it was. And I just want to make clear, she never released the ants. I never got bitten by an ant. They stayed in the baggie. The whole point of her punishment was to have those ants in the bag. Um, I think she felt like rendered it a, a safe punishment. That was enough, though. That really was enough. I I don't know, to be honest, because, it, you know, we're such resilient people. We really are. We tend to internalize traumatic events and just move on with life. So my personality, the core of who I am, was not going to change because somebody did something terrible to me. And I think that's an important lesson to learn. It is not okay. I just want to make clear here because I know that this is a triggering conversation for many because there are so many varieties of trauma out there. And I empathize with that. And I just want to acknowledge it, whatever your journey is. But I think it's really important to understand that no matter what has happened to you, Um, No matter what happens to me, anyway, I should return to personalizing this story and this observation is that I am still who I have always been. 
And therefore, whatever it is that acted upon me needs to be separated from who I am in order for me to heal, in order for me to isolate where the injury is so that I can apply the proper treatment to it and successfully move on. Um, As a child, you don't have that kind of evolved understanding of the self. But I don't, I really don't think that she really changed who I was. And that's why this event got internalized. Um, And then I just moved on. You know, we, we only have the capacity to hang on to things for so long, because life is dynamic. Life keeps happening. It just changes from moment to moment. New people come in, new opportunities come in, new stressors come in. I mean, there's there's just a lot of stuff going on. New thoughts come into your mind. There's a lot going on inside of us while a lot is going on in the world outside of us. So it's really hard to dwell on single incidences. And it got internalized. So I go on, I grow up, I don't remember her doing that again. My grandmother's not with us any longer. She passed away many years ago. And the thing is, with this story, I have to say, I know that my grandmother loved me. I'm not even mad at her. I don't have that level of emotion to be angry with her. And I guess that in many ways is what forgiveness is. Um, At this point, I just want to assure you that, you know, that happened when I was five years old. I've grown up a lot. There's been many, many years in between there. At this point, I have integrated it. I have processed it. I have put it behind me. And at this point, it's just a story whenever I tell it, like, oh, my God, can you believe she did that? You know, so there's there's just there's no hate there at all. I I know that she loved me. I got my love of baking and cooking from her. She was my primary caregiver. She made me wonderful meals. She did a lot to prove that she loved me. But at least on this occasion, she proved that aside from loving me, there were some serious issues going on with her perspective and her understanding of what was reasonable. And I think realizing that the inappropriateness did not lie with my behavior, but lied with my grandmother's view of things has allowed me the separation to not be angry with her. But you know, she came back, or if there was some way that I was that I would be able to speak with her, I think my first question would be like, Hey, Grandma, do you remember we called her Mamita, actually, it would be like, Hey, Mamita, do you remember when I used to toast my Wonder Bread on your offering candles to the saints? And then I would probably ask her, to give me a recipe for her amazing upside down pineapple cake that I miss so much. And that would be followed with a very serious, what did you think that was okay? 
And I think that series of questions just very briefly touches on the complexities of these relationships that we have with our caregivers growing up. There's no such thing as perfection. So um, my whole purpose of bringing this up in this episode is that it was triggered by seeing people jump away and scream and react with fear to this harmless, very beneficial lizard in the office and recognizing the intensity and the validity of that fear because it had been in me before. And I understand the origins of my trigger point. Um, I used to think, like we all do, that this was an isolated thing, that I was the only one that felt like this, that I was the only one that that responded this unreasonably to outside stressors, that I applied the label of stress to that creature that is everywhere. Like, you know, just imagine taking a bunch of little sticky notes and you're putting stress, 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 bee, butterfly, uh, caterpillar, spider, every, everything would have a stressor on it. And you're jumping. They're, they're all red little sticky labels and you're jumping every time that you see one because they're flying at you or they're crawling towards you. And I think we do that a lot. And if we can figure out what the etiology, what the genesis is, what what the triggering event was that caused us to apply a red sticky label inappropriately, right? We we really need to go through our brain and kind of do a little bit of housekeeping in there. And we're hoarding a lot of stuff without even knowing it. We hoard. We're we're like thought hoarders. And I think that it's really important when we have a super unreasonable reaction to something to take a minute and go, let me go find that sticky label in there because I need to toss that out. And it's, you know, like that's very simplified. Um, There's a lot of thought that goes into it. But there's also needs to be a realization that when you find out what the origin to your fear was, as I did later in life, um, reconnecting with that memory, that we don't take the disappointment and the frustration and the anger and apply a bigger sticky label on the person that committed the offense. So that you don't end up trading, you know, one negative belief for another one. And I think that's why perspective and forgiveness are such important concepts, especially when applied to things or histories that can't be changed. And, you know, honestly, my grandmother's gone. I don't know her entire story. I do know that she had kind of a tough life in Costa Rica. And, you know, again, the child rearing cultural norms and mores of her time period and the country that she lived in and that culture were vastly different than America's 
cultural norms and mores are today. We would never dream of doing anything like this to a child. So I do need to bring all of those factors in and just recognize, too, that good people do bad stuff sometimes. And, you know, I I don't know why she did that. I don't know. That's why that would be my question. Like, you know, um, there, there probably is no good answer for it. But um, I, I have a lot of empathy for my grandmother's upbringing and um, also her situation here in the United States. It's not easy to move and then be expected to be the caregiver to an entire family while they go out and work. You know, my parents were out working, like I said, my grandfather, everybody, everybody was doing something and expecting her to just hold the foundation together. So something had to give. Um, Again, I'm not excusing it, but I am understanding it. And I think that that is a really big distinction in making sense of things that happen to us. The fact of the matter is that there's a lot of amazing things that my grandmother did for me. And, um, and they all just it's it's just little pieces of a puzzle. They all come together eventually. And you're going to have some bad crap in there. And you're going to have some really, really fantastic stuff in there. So there is a complexity involved in it. And um, I think we all do our best to try to understand who we are. And this is my method of uh, coming closer in contact with the core of who I am and the way that I frame my perspective of the world so that, you know, I can find the purpose and the meaning and that contentment in living through all the stuff that life throws at you. I mean, 2020, 2021, so far 2022, we're watching the brewing of World War III in Europe. Um, We're still dealing with COVID. We're still dealing with stressors. You've got to find a way to somehow set the past down so that you can attend to the present and so that you can attend to your inner spirit and figure out a way to coexist with the stressors of life and the beauty of life and that fragile inner spirit within each of us. So anyway, I did move on from this, but I was always plagued throughout my childhood and teenage years and really into adulthood by this extreme phobia of bugs. And I didn't connect it to its origin. I didn't know where it came from. I was afraid of honeybees. I would run screaming if I I interrupted a wedding because a honeybee flew near me and it was an outdoor wedding. And I was trying to not be upset with this uh, bee coming so close and then it came too close and I screamed. Um, I was afraid of flies, petrified of moths. It was debilitating and especially having a fear of a group of animals that comprises the largest variety and largest number of creatures living on this planet alongside me aside from bacterias and and that sort of thing. Um, 
bugs happen. Bugs are everywhere. So I remember being in college biology class and we were going to do something where we needed test tubes and the the professor went over and picked up a box with a bunch of test tubes in, in the little cardboard squares and she pulled one out and she was standing next to me and she goes, oh, look, there's a moth caught in here. And it was one of the big evening moths completely stuck at the center of this test tube. It must have been, it was white. So it must have been something like a Vestal tiger moth and which are incredibly beautiful and just um, so delicate and kind of cute because of all of the fuzzy hairs on them. Um, But at the time, I did not think any of that. I just went into immediate paralyzing panic. And I couldn't even talk as I watched her hold the closed end of that test tube and flick as hard as she could to try to loose that moth from it where it wedged itself in. And she kept flicking and flicking. And I literally could feel my brain crawling inside of my skull. That was a sensation that I got. I wonder if I had a blood pressure cuff on me, (laughs) Uh, monitoring what my blood pressure was at that moment. uh, It it probably would have been somewhere just insane. Thank God I was young. Thank God I was very young and not in any danger of having a heart attack. But she finally got it loose. And it was just like watching the contents of Pandora's box fluttering away on these white wings as it streaked past me and up into the ceiling. And she and most of the class just kind of were like, whoa, that's so cool. And, you know, she had this huge happy look on her face, beautiful countenance of seeing she had saved a creature who otherwise would have died wedged inside of this test tube. And then she looked over at me and she she goes, are you okay? And it took me a minute to find my voice. And I said, I'm petrified of insects. And she immediately just, you could see her face going from this joy of releasing this insect to deep, deep concern about the trauma she had just exposed me to. She said, I'm so sorry. I wish you, you know, you should have said something. The phobia literally petrified me. It rendered me speechless and immobilized me. Um, I felt terrible that she felt terrible, but I was so scared that this moth might at any moment streak down from the ceiling and land on me or flutter around me in, in a taunting way. The funny thing about phobias is that I have no idea what carried out to its final point my imagination was thinking this moth would do to me, if it touched me, if it landed on me. The logical part of my mind knew that moths don't bite, 
or otherwise hurt people, you know, I mean, they'll chew on your clothes and make you unhappy, but they're not going to hurt you physically in any manner. But I don't know what I thought this moth would do. All I knew was that there was a big red danger sticky note on that moth and that it needed to stay away from me and that I needed to fear it deeply. And those red sticky notes almost killed me twice. The first time I had gone out for the evening, I was the passenger in a car that had the top down. We'd parked it with the top down and the windows rolled down. Beautiful, sunny Southern California day, of course. So, you know, we were having a really nice time. It was probably about nine or 10 o'clock at night when we left. And we had traveled several blocks. The top was still down. The windows were still rolled down. It was a warm summer evening. And from the floorboards between my feet, I watch in terror as a crane fly started bobbing and weaving its way up. If you've never seen a crane fly, they look like enormous mosquitoes. I mean, just gargantuan, like some throwback from a prehistoric era mosquito. And even those aren't enormous. If you ever take a look at um, one of them trapped in amber. And just for the record, crane flies favorite food is mosquitoes. So they're tremendously beneficial to have around. But understanding is the panacea for panic. There's an interesting paradox because we don't want to learn about what we're afraid of. We're too afraid to learn of it. And the less we know about it, the more we fear it. Hence, in my ignorance, that panic, that terror, that blindedness that took over my mind and my body went into full gear and I started screaming. And at this point, we were in an intersection making a left turn. And I threw the door open. And of course, the driver of the car is looking at me like I have completely lost my mind because in essence, I did lose my mind. I read the sticky notes and I followed the instructions really well, which was set your mind aside and panic. The end of the world may come. And having said that, I don't even know that I thought that there was an end of the world. Uh, you know, there, there's no thought that goes through. And that's what's so dangerous about phobias. There is just literally no thought. Fortunately, the driver noticed that there was no oncoming traffic, finished that left turn and hastily turned into a driveway and hadn't even gotten past the sidewalk part of the driveway before I was leaping out of the car already. And I got roundly chastised, but I wasn't listening to any of that. I was so busy trying to figure out, did this crane fly land on me? And I don't even think that at the time, I knew that this terror, this imagined terror was called a crane fly. I didn't know anything about it. 
you know, I just knew it was danger. I just knew that these things with wings, these things with multiple legs, and that could come out of the sky at any time were all a danger to me. That's all that I knew. These things are dangerous. I didn't know how. I didn't know what would happen to me. I just knew that that red sticky note was on them. There was a second time that something very similar to that happened. I was actually driving my car and I had a passenger with me, my cousin. um, And we were at, again, making a left turn, actually. We were in a left-hand turn lane and there was a lot of strong traffic generated wind because it was a very busy intersection, unlike the crane fly intersection. And I'm chatting away with my cousin and I noticed something out of the corner of my eye over my left shoulder. And I looked just barely over my left shoulder and there's this menacing looking wasp that is just staring back at me with those giant multifaceted eyes. And I knew, I knew that it was sizing me up for the right place to sting me. And I I went again, into a panic. Um, You know, the interesting thing that I recall about that wasp is in her front legs, she held this perfectly round green ball of chewed up vegetation, uh, probably to go build her nest, uh, probably a paper wasp. And she got blown into my car by these you know, nine, 10 plus thousand pound automobiles that were knocking her askew because her center of balance was off because she was carrying this ball that she spent chewing up and turning into material suitable enough to build her nest. This was very important to her. And she got blown into my car and she actually you know, in hindsight, and I don't know if I'm anthro, um, that's one of those words, anthropomorphizing her. I don't know if that's what I'm doing, but she looked exhausted. And, you know, I imagine that the life of an insect can be exhausting at times, especially when you hit winds like that. But my immediate reaction was to jump out, except... I couldn't jump out on the driver's side because that would mean risking getting closer to this creature with my gigantic red sticky on it. And that like double danger. And I wasn't going to open up that driver's side door and jump out. So as traffic is like flying past the the passenger side, I tell my cousin, open your door and get out, open your door and get out. And she's looking at me like I've lost my mind because again, indeed I had. And she actually said, you're crazy. No, I knew if this wasp lit off, there was a very strong possibility that it would light off into the back of the vehicle and now have all kinds of room to be buzzing around and getting very upset at not being able to escape and come back and sting us. So logic finally set in. And I grabbed some papers that she was holding in her hand that my cousin was holding in her hand. And I stole as much of my courage, just just scrounged up as much courage as I could. 
and I took those papers and flicked the wasp out the window and then rolled up my window as fast as I could. And I felt like I had, I wasn't rolling it up quick enough. It's like those horror movies where somebody's trying to pull down one of those rolling garage doors and it almost closes, but then the, the monster or the bad guy or whatever it is just stops it and is able to push that door back up and get in. I thought this wasp is gonna come back and literally start pounding for entrance into my car on the window. And, you know, just before I closed it up, was gonna figure out a way to get in. When the light turned green for me, that arrow turned green for me to make my left turn, I had to pull into a driveway to calm down, to calm the hell down. And my cousin, had to calm down from having to deal with a psycho, a complete psychotic person who almost forced her in front of a speeding car. So phobias are a serious problem. And I think, I think about that point, I was becoming cognizant of the fact that this was a giant issue. I was actually realizing not all of the ramifications of, oh, I almost killed my cousin and I almost killed myself, but I think at least the embarrassment of behaving that way in front of people because of bugs. But it wasn't by any means the last time that I carried on like a lunatic because of bugs. And so actually there was a day when I was working in healthcare, the the same home health agency slash pharmacy that I worked at that I talked about uh, last week with the AIDS patients. And it was near a park where they would have a farmer's market every Tuesday. So we'd go to the farmer's market. It was just a very short walk from the office. And it just kind of became a Tuesday thing. Whenever the market was there, we would go. And it was just a great way to release stress, catch up with each other, have that little break in the middle of the day, have something really healthy. One of my girlfriends, Suzette and I, one day went over there and it was just the two of us and we had finished our little picnic. We're getting ready to go back to the office. And I said, I have to go to the restroom. So I went into this restroom and I don't know why they do this because a lot of very nice areas, they have these incredibly sanitized. I do know why they do it, but they have these restrooms that are all stainless steel, like everything. Toilet is stainless steel, and usually it doesn't have a seat. There's a button on the wall. The dividers for each stall are stainless steel. The sinks are stainless steel. The faucets are stainless steel. There's usually no paper towels in there because there's a hand dryer that's also stainless steel in there. So so that's what this restroom was. And it was, you know, this charming little cottage-looking thing with, uh, you know, the men on one side and the women's on the other side. And so I go in there and start going to the bathroom and a California carpenter bee, those big black 
bees flies in. And this is a completely stainless steel. And that drone starts to vibrate. That vibratory echo is going through the bathroom, making it sound like there's a million bees in there. And I stood up, pulled up my pants, and ran screaming out of there because I'm thinking I'm going to get stung to death on the toilet and I'm going to die. And this is what the headline in the newspaper is going to be the next day. Woman dies stung to death on toilet in park. People were staring and my friend Suzette is um, sitting on a bench and she's just watching me come out of there screaming. I mean, I think people thought that the lunatic with the knife was behind me and they stopped to look to see what was going on. She just sat on the bench, did not move. I think she probably was hoping that I would keep running and maybe, you know, crash into a tree and knock myself out. And then she could just sneak away and go back to the office and nobody would have to know that we were together. Um, But alas, that did not happen to her. So she became part of the spectacle. And The thing is, California carpenter bees are docile. Like, you know, don't go and pick them up. They can sting you. For sure they can sting you. But generally, they they are kind of a docile bee. Um, So I finally sat down next to Suzette. And she listened to me finish getting my babbly crazy talk out about how I almost died on the toilet and God knows how many bees were in that bathroom. Um, she just watched me very quietly. And then when I ran out of words, she kept watching me very quietly. Until it became really awkward. And then she took a deep breath and in a very low voice that was held a lot of emotion in it, disappointment, frustration, a sense of having given up on me. It was like a final Hail Mary talk. If this doesn't work, nothing will. Tone. And everybody had moved on. And we just sat there. And she said something. I don't remember what the whole talk was. I do remember all of those. The sense and feel and processing with great shame and sadness myself that I had so deeply disappointed this friend that I loved so much and whom I regarded so highly and embarrassed her through my behavior. And we had, well, she had a long conversation with me because my words dried up. Because now I was more on an emotional plane. And I was drained and in a place where I could actually listen to her. And I recall her saying 
something to the effect that I needed to get over my phobia, that bugs were not coming after me, and that I needed to learn how to live with them because basically bugs happen. And if you don't get a handle on this, Syl, when you have children, you're going to pass this phobia down to them. And if you can't control yourself when there's bugs around, you're going to have children who run screaming in terror from bugs. And it really connected very deeply with me at that moment. And it would be quite a long time before I had children. But I remember stopping at the bookstore on the way home that day and heading over to the animal section and purchasing a couple of books on bugs. And they sat on my table for a while, like a really good long while, because I didn't want to know about bugs. Bugs were scary. Bugs could sting you and they could bite you and they could kill you. And sometimes the phobia, the belief, the inaccuracies, the terror has a comforting value. And we think, at least this is what happened to me. If I open these books, I'm going to learn that my fears are well-founded. And that's the thing about phobias. I didn't even have a clear idea of what would happen to me if I was bitten, I was stung, if I was just grazed by a wing. I have literally to this day no idea. But in my mind, I just see little X's across my eyes and a little O where my mouth is. But really, I do remember the terror that those thoughts evoked. It was incapacitating and it was debilitating. It was stopping me from living life. I mean, to be afraid of something so widely distributed throughout this planet as bugs can stop you from living life in a way that you're not constantly looking over your shoulder, that you're not constantly scanning a room or, or, you know, lifting your feet up from the floor or just imagining things touching you. And so eventually those books out there for so long that I decided I need to go and get a book that I'll actually open. I got a book on butterflies and moths. I was never afraid of butterflies. Butterflies are amazing. Butterflies and ladybugs and caterpillars and snails that carry their homes on their backs. Um, There were really whimsical and pretty things within the realm of insects and bugs that appealed to me. And so I started learning about butterflies and moths, and it was fascinating, you know, learning that when I take a look at, for example, um, cabbage whites that flutter around all over the place here in Los Angeles, how easily you can distinguish a male from a female, a single dot and a much whiter butterfly is a male, 
Whereas if you see two dots on that front wing and slightly yellower tone to it, that's a female. And you'll see butterflies doing kind of this little tornado-y flight pattern where there's like two of them and they're just dance, this little flurry of wings. They're dueling. Usually it's two males dueling over a female. Some butterflies, like the little golden fiery skipper moths that hop around on clover and dandelions, they're really super aggressive. And I remember I had just picked a few figs off of the fig tree and there was a hummingbird that sat down on the fig tree and I was sitting out there eating these figs and I was watching these little skipper moths just, you know, flitting around on the flowers and one of them stopped and zoomed up into the fig tree and the hummingbird, they sound like George Jetson spaceships when they take off and then the moth went back and I thought, well, that's really odd. The hummingbird came back and that little skippy moth scared that hummingbird away. And it kept happening over and over. And I thought, this is hilarious. That hummingbird is being terrorized by a moth. Um, Just the most fascinating things I started learning. And that book on butterflies really encouraged me to learn more about other bugs. And I learned the most fascinating thing. There's There's actually ants in South America that are suicide bomber ants. I mean, it's insane. They're usually the older ants in these colonies, and they actually have a blue dot on them that has some sort of chemical formulation similar to like C4. And when their colony is attacked, these older suicide bomber ants race over to the predator and blow themselves up and kill the predator. I mean, like, how badass is that? There are bell dome spiders, I believe is what they're called. And they're actually land spiders that have adapted to living underwater. They bring a bubble down, and then they go up and they get more oxygen, and they swim down to that first bubble and inject that oxygen into it and keep doing that until it's just the right size, and then they create chambers in there. And they kill little fish that go by and bring them into their kitchen area. And they have like a waste area. And um, dragonflies can fly backwards and they have four wings, each of which will move independently of each other. So they have rudders and, you know, like those feather wings on the smaller airplanes like Cessnas and um, things that we would never ever imagine without learning about what we're afraid of. And then we're like, what? They do that? That's insane. And um, since I mentioned ants, when I was in college, I was in an honors program. And as part of that program, I had to fulfill a certain number of lectures. I had to attend a certain number of lectures. And one of the lectures happened to be on pheromones. At the time, I had just become certificated as an aromatherapist. I was very interested in the way that essential oils were extracted from various plants, their constituents, their components, their therapeutic values, and of course, their fantastic scents. And so this 
course on pheromones really interested me. And it happened to talk about how ants communicate with one of one another. And he told a funny story, which was these researchers were watching an ant community. And ants are very complex in the way that they run their communities. They have kitchen areas or, you know, feeding areas. They have waste areas. And they even have a graveyard. So they started noticing that sometimes ants would stop and pick up a dead ant and carry it to the graveyard. And the reason that they realized that the ant was dead not is not really because it looked dead. I'm not sure that they have that good of eyesight. I, I've re- read all these books, but they're very cursory. It's not like I am actually an entomologist. Although I do have to say, if I had my life to do all over again, that is what I would be. But these researchers said that the reason that they knew that a dead ant is dead is because there's a death pheromone that they release. Um, These researchers got to thinking, let's extract enough death pheromone so that we could paint it on a living ant and see what happens. So got in, randomly picked an ant and like named him Henry or something. And painted this death pheromone on Henry and Henry was on his way to go get grain and bring back to the colony for food. And as he's walking along, you know, if you watch an ant trail, you'll notice that they uh, stop sometimes and rub antennae with one another. And that's how they're exchanging these chemical communications. And so, you know, somebody else comes over and rubs his antennae against Henry's and they're like, oh, you're dead. So the ant picks Henry up, puts him on his back and carries him over to the graveyard. And Henry's little legs are going all over the place like, what the hell is happening here? And he gets dumped off in the graveyard and he gets up, looks around, dusts himself off and goes back to go get back in the trail and go get that grain because that's what he's programmed to do. And Somebody else along the trail rubs antennae with Henry, who is passing off a pheromone, he thinks, that says, I'm going to get grain. And the other ant reads, Henry is dead, and takes him back to the graveyard. And anyway, this continued to happen until Henry stayed in the graveyard, because he really was dead at that point. Um, And I just, oh my god. Researchers crack me up. They really do. (laughs) I mean, there's really a lot of benefits to learning about the things that scare us. And, you know, on the flip side, it's not like all of these bugs are wonderful. There's things like velvet ants and tarantula hawks that I would have never known of had I not started learning about insects. And so, you know, there was this one time when I was in Big Bear on a trail with uh, the same girls weekend girls, because uh, we do this all the time. And I was hanging back with Carla 
just chatting and the rest of the girls were up ahead and then we see them huddling around something in the soil. Somebody noticed something and it was interesting. They're all asking each other what this is and they didn't know what it was, but I see somebody's hand going towards it and I was like, do not touch that. It is a velvet ant. Velvet ants have one of the most painful stings in the animal kingdom. I mean, they will throw you into convulsions and seizures, and it's just uh, not a good thing. Um, they're they're wingless wasps, and they're kind of cute. They're very fuzzy and um, striped and kind of look a little bit like, um, I think they call them panda bears sometimes. You know, they're, they are, they're really cute. Just don't touch. And tarantula hawks, tarantula hawks are a terror. They will do the same exact thing. They're right up there in the worst stings that you could possibly get. And they are wasps. They're enormous. They're kind of like the emo vampires of the insect world. They're all black and shiny on the outside. And they have these red, roughly underwings, you know, they're also kind of like the uh, Le Boutons of... (laughs) (laughs) of the insect world with the black on top and the red underneath. And they're just a terror. They will sting tarantulas, which is why they're called tarantula hawk, and incapacitate them, drag them, muscle them. I mean, this is an insect muscling a big old giant spider into its burrow while it's still alive. That's all. They just incapacitate it, but then they lay their eggs inside of the tarantula. And when the gestational period is over, the larvae are hatched, they've got fresh meat because that tarantula is still alive. And they do something really diabolically terrible, which is that they eat the tarantula from the extremities in, saving the heart for last so that the meat stays fresh until they're ready to go out and terrorize the world of tarantulas. Um, Nature's just fascinating. And, you know, when I was in New Mexico, we drove through the desert and the Ocotillo were blooming, glorious, just fields of Ocotillo. And the flowers on Ocotillo, which are gorgeous, they're dark brown with some red on them, they almost mimic the same colors as tarantula hawks. And because they're so big, we could see swarms of tarantula hawks just kind of doing a normal, lovely insect thing. They were landing on these flowers and they were drinking the nectar. And it was just kind of neat to see this menace of the insect world doing something so normal as collecting nectar. It's amazing. So when I finally had my kids, One of the pledges that I had made because of Suzette, because of her ability to restore, to restore my reason, to to penetrate the listening centers of my brain. Um, And I'm incredibly grateful to her about that. I, I kind of made a pledge back then because it scared me more to have children who were going to be afraid of bugs and act irrationally, then it scared me to have a bug land on me. And sometimes it just comes down to that. 
And so what I did was I remember I had planted a bunch of beautiful zinnias and they all came up. And I took Cameron out there and there were some interesting beetles. And of course, I looked them up first. They were harmless and I would pick them up and I would show Cameron that they were okay. And Cameron would put his hand out, you know, he was, I don't know, a year and a half, a year old, whatever, old enough to be able to have that, that kind of control. So he was very little and want this bug to crawl on him too, you know, and he would look at it um, and study it. And we'd go out there and drink hot chocolate with marshmallows and watch a spider in the evening, like freaking make an amazing web. The other thing was when we discovered hummingbird moths, they're gigantic and they look like hummingbirds. So I had a bunch of bearded Jupiter's flocks growing in the front yard and they would come at twilight and we'd go out there and watch them. You know, we'd find out that there was a bug fair. We were there and I would go to the weirdest, scariest looking bug they were exhibiting and I would ask if I could handle it. Just, you know, walking sticks, stuff that, that you know, mostly is not um, indigenous to the United States. In fact, something that's really interesting about bugs like millipedes, um, which look like giant Tootsie Rolls with a bunch of bristles on the bottom, um, and rhinoceros beetles and walking sticks and all of these exotic bugs. Uh, you have to actually get federal licensing to be able to own some of these. There's a lot of responsibility that goes behind owning these animals. And just like with my episode regarding um, being stewards of tidal areas, of being stewards of forest lands, we have to be stewards of these creatures that live around us. And I have to say that it makes me really proud, not just proud, but deeply satisfied and happy to know that my children did not experience unfounded phobias. It was something that was very important to me. And I feel that it makes them more grounded human beings. I think it's really important to give your kids the tools that are going to help them survive the best, as well as most comfortably out there. And just having a little bit of knowledge brings a lot of comfort, which in turn, builds confidence, and in turn, builds courage to try new things. So with that, I challenge you gently to learn about the things that you fear. Go out there and conquer your fear and take your power back. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and that you will take some time to learn about whatever it is that you're afraid of. As always, Keep your questions and your suggestions coming. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or any other, please take a minute to rate it because it'll help move it closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. And speaking of friends, I've got more in the company of friends talks coming up that I'm really excited about lists with Sophia and so much more. So be sure to follow me 
on the socials and the dot com where I post updates, upcoming topics, recipes, and lots more. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the dot com at T H E Q U A I N T R E L L E podcast. I am Sil Annan, the Queen Trell. And until next time, I wish you curiosity, courage, passion, grace, elegance, and beauty. Bye.